HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liu, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. The United Nations calls antibiotic resistance the greatest and most urgent health risk today, yet simultaneously it remains a hidden epidemic. We're going to discuss today the extent of the problem, um, how this happened, and where we're going to go from here. Uh, joining the show to get into this discussion with me is Marin McKenna. She's an award-winning health journalist, author, and National Geographic contributor. And her recent book uh, deals all about this issue. Um, it's titled Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats, which neatly summarizes exactly what we're going to be discussing today. Marin, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Okay, so just to just start off, um, can you just give us a bit of a background about why you decided to write this book uh, about antibiotic resistance in particular, and, um, and also why focus on chicken? Sure. I'm a journalist specializing in public health and global health, um, so that means that I write about scary diseases and mm-hmm. threats to health and so forth. And I've been interested in antibiotic resistance for a long time. And so just to kind of define terms here, what antibiotic resistance means is that the bacteria that cause disease and which can be killed by antibiotics mutate in such a way that they can defend themselves against the antibiotic killing them. Mm -hmm. So antibiotics become just not useful anymore. And this happens pretty predictably, and it happens pretty rapidly, and it happens more commonly when we use antibiotics badly. That is, when we use them for some reason other than to actually cure an illness. And that happens, for instance, if you have a viral illness, but you take antibiotics which can only kill bacteria, or you take antibiotics, the wrong antibiotic, you take it for the wrong period of time, and it also happens if you take the wrong dose, especially a too small dose, because then the weak bacteria will be killed, but the strong will survive and reproduce. Mm -hmm. Now, why is all that important? Um, We've known all about that in medicine for a while, and about, uh, it's probably almost 10 years ago now, I got interested in the problem of antibiotic resistance generally, and how was it that antibiotic resistance had arisen pretty much at the beginning of the antibiotic era. As soon as we had antibiotics in the 1940s, there was antibiotic resistance. Why hadn't we gotten the message that we were continually creating this problem? But in the process of 
reporting that book, which was published seven years ago now and uh, was called Superbug, mm-hmm. um, I discovered that the problem wasn't only due to medicine. It wasn't only that doctors were using the wrong drug or that people were going to the doctor and demanding antibiotics, but that in parallel to medicine, right from the start of antibiotics arriving, we had been using them in meat animals in exactly the way that creates antibiotic resistance. And despite knowing that that was a danger, again, just about from the start of this practice, we somehow had not been able to get it under control, except in a few places in the world. And uh, somewhat in the United States, just as I was finishing the book, we mm. got a bit of reform. Um, and I was Which we'll definitely talk about it yeah. later, for sure. I was staggered that this problem had been in plain sight for all those decades. Right. And, uh, and, and we had just never effectively dealt with it. And I felt like I had to know more. And it turned out that all the stuff that I, I uh, found out when I was researching this was enough to make a book. Yes, and horrifying. Um, okay, so how much, just how much antibiotics are used in our food system today? I mean, you write that 80% in the U.S. are not even used for um, treatment of humans. So can you just give us a perspective of the landscape, the antibiotic landscape? So these numbers are, are moving around a bit, and part of the reason for that is because the, the reporting of the numbers isn't very good, but, um, and, and also that they're, they're counted in different ways. But generally speaking, mm-hmm. um, in the United States, it seems clear that 75 to 85% of the antibiotics that are sold every year are being sold for use in livestock, not in people. In a year when the, um, a couple of years ago, those are reported in two different databases that go to different government agencies. Mm -hmm. A couple of years ago, the Pew Charitable Trust did a really good job of matching up the two databases. And the amount that was being used in humans was something like 7 million pounds a year, and the amount being used in animals was something like 28, 29 million pounds a year. Wow. Now, some of those have, you know, those, that, those are moving targets, and they have moved up or down a bit in the years since. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and again, those databases are hard to get and hard to, to compare. But that proportion, that ratio, has stayed pretty constant for, for, for most of, you know, for, for the couple of years since that calculation was done. When we, when we talk more about policy a little bit later, I want to ask, like, why it is that this is so uh, underreported, because to me, and why, like, the Pew Charitable Trust, trust um, for instance, would be kind of leading the charge on this versus, like, a government agency. This seems, like, to fall very much within the purview of, uh, like, the CDC or the FDA or something that we would hope uh, would have, like, you know, a better grasp on this, given the, the extent of the, the threat that it poses. Um, but okay, so for now we'll get to, we'll get to that. But for now, all right. So you wrote specifically about chickens. How? Let's talk about the industry. Um, you know, first and foremost, how? What does the the industry in terms of size look like? Um, you know, from a production standpoint in the United States today, and how does that compare to other countries? Um, and then how much do we eat? So the reason that this is a book about chicken is that as I dug into this story, I realized that chicken really kind of brackets the story of the misuse of antibiotics in agriculture in, in the United States and around the world. And mm-hmm. I'll just, uh, just explain that briefly, and then we'll talk about sort of the massive size of the chicken industry. Mm-hmm. So the very first animals to get experimentally what came to be called growth promoter antibiotics, that is these tiny doses that are used not to treat disease, but for other reasons, were chickens. Chickens in an experiment conducted at a pharma company outside New York City at the end of 1948. So chickens really begin this story. Mm -hmm. Chickens are the first meat animals in which drugs like this are deployed routinely. So chicken kind of taught the rest of livestock agriculture how to misuse antibiotics. And then in what turned out to be a really nice kind of the narrative arc of the story, chicken became in the mid-2010, so between all right, 2010, 2014, around 2014, um, chicken became the first 
sector of the protein economy in the United States to voluntarily turn away from using antibiotics. Almost all of the major poultry producers in the U.S. now have dialed down their antibiotic use to some extent, and we can talk about why they did that. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that chicken kind of led agriculture into this historic mistake, it seemed that chicken was going to maybe show the path out of it again, and I just found that so narratively perfect that yeah. I had to make the story about chicken, too. And, and chicken is, you know, chicken is the, the most, it's pretty much the most important meat in our lives. Right. We eat more chicken in the United States. I think it's maybe something like twice as much chicken as beef now, and it has been more, more chicken than beef since the 1970s. Right, and it, 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 and that sw- switched, right? That swapped. Right. Yeah, because chicken, um, you know, around the time that we were all warned against saturated fat in the late 1970s when the government came out with the first dietary guidelines for Americans, they said, eat less saturated fat, and that was interpreted as eat less red meat. Mm-hmm. And around that same time, seeing that the, the, the market turning toward chicken, McDonald's came out with the chicken nuggets in 1980, and that completely changed how we eat chicken. But chicken, you know, people are are staggered when I tell them these numbers, but we produce in the United States almost 9 billion chickens a year. Sorry, that's a B? B, Billion with a B, yeah. Here, I I live in Atlanta, a couple of miles from the CDC, and Georgia, where I live, is the the most... the state in the United States that produces the most chicken, 1.4 billion chickens a year wow. come out of Georgia. And the most amazing thing is that if you were to go to drive around Georgia or North Carolina or South Carolina or the other major chicken-producing states, you would never see one of those chickens. You know, we, we, I think we kind of take for granted that if, we, if we're raising cattle, at some point you can drive past a ranch or a feedlot and you will see a cow but it's almost impossible to see a commercial production chicken because they are overwhelmingly raised in these solid-walled metal barns that, uh, that for the most part, don't have windows in them, and the chickens, for the most part, never goes outside. So this massive production of meat really happens, you know, kind of out of sight and therefore out of mind for most of us who eat chicken. When did, he, when did the scientists, I mean, you... you stated that as soon as kind of antibiotics came on the market, they began to develop, um, you know, bacteria resistance was a natural, you know, followed suit very quickly. But when did scientists really start noticing the problem in antibiotic resistance in our meat supply, caused by our meat supply? Mm -hmm. So this is, let me just kind of sketch out the timeline here. The the very first antibiotic is penicillin. And Penicillin is kind of perceived by its discoverer, Alexander Fleming, in 1928. Uh, He's in his laboratory in uh, St. Mary's Hospital in London. He leaves the window open because it's 1928. They don't have air conditioning. And something blows in the window and contaminates his Petri dishes. And when he goes to clean off those Petri dishes a couple of weeks later because It's 1928, they don't have plastics, everything is made of glass and has to be reused. He realizes that what blew in the window is a mold, just ordinary blue-green mold like you'd see on a piece of bread. Mm -hmm. And that mold is is secreting something that is killing the bacteria that was already on the plates. And that compound that the mold makes was the first natural penicillin. Now, for a variety of reasons having to do with Fleming's own interests and the pressure of the beginning of World War II and so forth, Penicillin didn't actually become a drug until 1940, and the, f- the first human trial of penicillin is in 1941, and it comes on the market in 1943. But even before it reaches the market, in the lab, researchers are already observing that bacteria are adapting to penicillin and learning to defend themselves against it, actually making physical changes in the structure of bacteria from generation to generation that protects them against the attack of the drug. Mm-hmm. So that is happening first for medical use and, and sort of over-the-counter use because in the earliest years, penicillin was not a prescription drug. Anyone could walk into a pharmacy and buy it. But the tricky thing about, at first, um, assigning a percentage of resistance to the use of antibiotics in agriculture is that agriculture begins using the exact same drugs 
that are used in human medicine. So the very first drug that's used that, that in that first experiment in chickens is the first tetracycline drug, which is um, developed in the beginning of 1948. It's called oreomycin, or later it comes to be known by the generic name chlorotetracycline. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the first of the entire class of tetracycline drugs, which we still use today, just as we still use penicillin today. And so at first, when resistance to tetracycline and resistance to penicillin arise, it's tricky to tell. People assume, oh, this must be because of medical use. And it's not until the mid-1950s when alert epidemiologists and and, um, doctors notice that they are seeing two things. First, resistant infections in people who handle meat for a living, the slaughterhouse workers, and then resistant infections in people who've eaten a particular batch of meat and who are linked in their infection only by their exposure to that meat. Do they start to say, oh, this can't be due to medical use. Right. This has to be because of the use in agriculture and, and in some cases in the use of, there were some uses of antibiotics actually to treat animal flesh after the animals were dead, yeah. which is just a completely bizarre as story that, um, that it was kind of a lost episode until I, uh, you know, like found it for the book. Yeah. Um, but that, that tie, there, there begins by the mid-1950s, there begins to be an understanding that as much as medicine has been a channel for antibiotic resistance to occur, now agriculture is becoming a channel for that as well. So I, I guess I, you know, assumed that antibiotics that are administered to animals would be different than those that humans, uh, you know, that hu- humans are given. So are you saying there's like similar compounds or the exact same drugs and that's how it's problematic or why it becomes problematic? This is the reason why it's problematic. Now, now, you know, 70 years on, as antibiotics have expanded, there, there are more classes of antibiotics and more types of antibiotics with different chemistry. There are some drugs that are used in meat animals that just aren't significant in, for, for humans because we don't use them in human medicine. And therefore, if resistance arose, it wouldn't be that big a deal because we'd never be using that drug to cure something in a person. But most of the drugs that have been used over the decades in animals to, to treat disease, but that's a tiny portion of what goes on, mostly to increase their weight and to protect them against infection in crowded barns and feedlots. They are, at their core, the exact same molecule. They might have different names because they're being licensed for medical use or for veterinary use, okay. but, but they are, at the, at the center of the chemistry, they're the same compound. And the reason why that's so important is if you take a compound and you give it to an animal and the, the bacteria in the animal's guts develops resistance to that compound as a way of defending itself, and then you take that animal and you kill it and the bacteria in the gut contents get to a person through the meat, and then that person through, develops... Through consuming through the meat? The meat? Through, yes. Is it only through consuming the meat? It's through, it's through exposure to meat. It's through consuming meat if it's not exposure to meat in the sense of handling. Mm-hmm. It's through uh, contaminating your kitchen. It's through bacteria um, surviving on the surface of the meat because it hasn't been cooked to the temperature of the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also through environmental pathways. You know, they, when, right. when we feed antibiotics to animals, and, and the, the, this problematic use was overwhelmingly through food and water, it affects their gut contents, and that gut contents is what we, you know, when it exits the animal, it's manure. And so manure lagoons for pig farms and manure on, ca- on cattle farms and litter, is, which is what the dry, um, dry manure from chicken houses is called, all of those are heaped up or puddled or lagooned on farms and is a source of resistant bacteria, which can move away from the farm via stormwater, get into the groundwater, blow away on dust, leave the farm on the clothing and skin of farm workers. There's many, many pathways through which the bacteria and also the resistance genes that the bacteria contain, which can persist even if the bacterium itself is killed and then be picked up by another bacterium. So I I, I like to think of, um, of the way we use antibiotics in farms and the resistance that arises as a result as being just this sort of like it's this this 
thing that permeates our lives, and we have no idea where where that those bacteria and those resistance genes have moved. We we don't do any job of tracking them, and so we create this widespread hazard. Right. We do a very bad job of protecting people from. Well, I, and I think that's a really important point for people to remember that it's not just, I mean, you may say like, well, I don't eat cheap meat, which is which is fantastic and like a huge part of the problem. And we can talk about kind of solutions uh, towards the end. But, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily just that, right? Like it can spread through things that are out of your control besides, you know, the the choice the dietary choices you make through runoff through contact with farm workers and and so on so i that's think right. that's right there are there are research teams who have who for instance have gotten into cars uh, that they fitted with air samplers and have driven down the road behind trucks carrying chickens and pigs to slaughter wow. and picked up resistant bacteria blowing off those trucks Wow. Oh, there, yeah. there are other research teams that have found that if you live within a certain distance, a certain radius of a concentrated animal feeding operation, a chicken or a pig farm, mm-hmm. you are at higher risk of developing a resistant infection, even if you have no contact with that farm and you never eat meat from that, that property. So there are a variety of ways in which this hazard that we've created we expose people to that risk, and, and they never know that they are exposed. So um, how many people are right now are thought to be resistant to uh, either some kind of antibiotic or, like, um, you know, most many of the antibiotics on the market today? So I want to um, correct something that you just said because yep. it's something that people uh, intuitively think of very commonly, mm-hmm. um, and it actually gets in the way of people understanding what's going on. So we don't become resistant. Um, what happens is that we have a resistant infection, but we, we're not intrinsically resistant ourselves. Okay. The, the reason that's important is that um, there's been a, a, some really interesting research to show that uh, when, when people think that the problem is that they are resistant, they tend to not want to take antibiotics that they're prescribed because they think, oh, if I take more antibiotics, it will make it worse. Mm-hmm. But in fact, if you're prescribed an antibiotic, you want to take all of it because that will make sure that any resistant bacteria in your system are killed. Uh, and if you, do, if you think, oh, instead, I am intrinsically resistant, then um, the chances are that you won't follow the medical direction to take the drugs that you should. So, okay. So that's just a rhetorical thing. But yes, I find a lot important. of people say that, and so I'm always being a nerd about um, correcting people. No, I mean, <laughs> you know, like the... the words matter, right? And getting and getting them the issue, um, you know, totally clear so we have an understanding is so important. So thank you for that. You're welcome. For so, that correction. Thank you for tolerating yes. that. So, oh my God, so no. how big a problem is this? Yeah. So in the United States, uh, a couple of years ago, the CDC came up with a set of numbers, which they're due actually to reassess next year. They think now it may have been an underestimate. But in the United States, in an average year, 23,000 people die of a resistant infection. About 2 million people seek medical care in a, a way that causes them to spend money, miss work, have uh, health care spending, and so forth. It's believed through a, a different set of research that the toll of antibiotic resistance worldwide is at least 700,000 deaths a year, and also predicted that it could go up to as much as 10 million deaths a year by the year 2050. Now, those are aggregate numbers. Mm-hmm. How much of it is due to medical um, versus, versus agricultural use? It's hard to say with precision precisely because the same drugs are being used in both realms, in medicine and in agriculture. But it's my sense that when you think of just the sheer volume of antibiotics that are being put out into the world to affect the microbial world, because of how much we're using them in agriculture, it only makes sense mm-hmm. that some significant proportion of those really staggering numbers is due to agriculture. Exactly how much, we won't know until we get antibiotics out of agriculture, and then we can see how much those numbers go down. But it would be foolish to say, oh, it, it has to be all medical use. It can't be, it'd be agricultural use. It, you know, right. it, it's only due to doctors prescribing badly. That just doesn't make sense. So it's just so it's like anyone can get these these um, 
infections, these bacterial infections, and no matter what, no drug will be able to cure them. Well, it's a little trickier than that. I mean, generally speaking for infections. Right. People are, you know, people who are already more vulnerable to some sort of health insult are also more vulnerable to resistant infection. So that's the very young, mm-hmm. that's people, the elderly, who may have um, their immune systems maybe sort of trending down. There's a, it's also people who have some kind of compromised immune system. But there are a lot of people like that in the world now. Anyone with HIV, right. anyone who's had cancer chemotherapy, anyone who's had an organ transplant and takes immunosuppressive drugs, anyone who has any kind of autoimmune disease, because uh, immunosuppressive drugs are used to damp down those. So that's something like someone who has, um, has uh, arthritis, for instance, might be taking that or any one of a number of immune conditions. There are many, many more um, immune, uh, I should have said rheumatoid arthritis, sorry. I don't want to make everyone who's got sore knees from running, I don't want to make them worried. Um, so, so there are many more people surviving with, with compromised immune systems in the world than there used to be, and those people are more vulnerable to resistant infections. Mm-hmm. But... In my reporting on this over the years, I have met so many people who have contracted a resistant infection who were perfectly healthy. And in, in these two books, Superbug and Feeding Back the, uh, and um, Big Chicken, I tell the story of some of them. In the, Big Chicken starts with the tale of a guy in California. Yes. Um, Rick Schiller was his name and is his name. He, st- he lived. But he, at the time he got sick, he was 51 years old. He, was, he worked out every day. He was a black belt in taekwondo. Uh, I mean, he was incredibly healthy, and he ate a very healthy diet uh, with a lot of fruits and vegetables and lean protein and so forth. And one day, his girlfriend, who did the shopping for them, and she was going out of town, so she thought she'd fill up the fridge before she was going out of town, and she bought a couple of packages of chicken thighs, and she baked them up for him and left them. And he ate uh, a couple of them, mm-hmm. and he got a drug-resistant salmonella infection, so profound that it caused inflammation in reaction to the infection throughout his body that was so serious that he almost lost a leg. Like it choked off the circulation in his leg. Yeah, you wrote that like they were afraid his leg was going to, his skin was going to rip. Which was Exactly. His, his, he described it to me as he woke up with this incredible pain and he pulled back the covers and his leg was stiff. He couldn't bend it and it was shiny and it was purple. <laughs> And he had, he just had a, you know, he lives in California. He had yeah. a tiny sports car. They, they like couldn't get his leg to bend to get it into the car uh-huh. in order for them to drive him to the ER. And they really thought for a couple of days that he was going to lose that leg. And though he did ev- eventually recover from it because they found that the infection was still, still would respond to some antibiotics, um, the, he was left with a really long-lasting what the medical term is sequelae, bad things that continue to happen after your main medical problem has resolved itself. He's had diverticulitis. He's had a number of surgeries. And there's, there's good research now done at, in various places around the world that if you have a profound and long-lasting foodborne illness, you are setting yourself up precisely because of all that inflammation for a lot of health problems down the road, for problems with your circulatory system, with your kidneys, with your liver, maybe aneurysms, maybe a different kind of arthritis that's called reactive arthritis that has to do with inflammation. Uh, a foodborne illness that comes from a resistant bacterium right. pretty much by definition is a longer-lasting illness that is harder to treat, and therefore anyone who has salmonella or campylobacter or shigella that's resistant because it came from an animal that was overfed antibiotics is in danger of getting one of these long-lasting problems. Um, I just, quick question. How um, are these antibiotics administered to chickens? Is it only through feed? Do do they get shots? Does it even matter how it's Mm -hmm. administered? So the main use of antibiotics in this, what's generally called non-therapeutic, uh, manner in this manner of making them fatter, making them uh, protected against infections, was overwhelmingly in feed. And then to a, a, a certain extent in water, but, but water often was um, reserved for, like, if you had to give sort of an extra dose, not necessarily a daily dose. Mm-hmm. Now, that's mostly for chickens because, you know, if you think that there's 35,000 chickens in a chicken house in any one crop, 
no one is going to go to the trouble of going around and giving 35,000 chickens injections, right? right. Yeah. Um, if you have cows, you might actually give injections to the cows, possibly to the pigs. But, de- but for pigs and chickens, for sure, this was mostly what was called in-feed antimicrobials. Now, uh, an important thing to say is that at just the point where I was finishing up this book, a couple of months before it came out, um, the, in one of its last acts in office, the Obama administration actually made in-feed antimicrobials, that is, growth promoter antibiotics, mm-hmm. functionally illegal in the United States. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the two uses of antibiotics in animals. There, you know, there, there's this growth promotion and then there's this prevention of disease. Using antibiotics for prevention of disease is still fully legal, right. in, in, not only in the U.S., but in most of the countries in the world. But if you think of it through a medical, if you look at it through a medical lens, you know, we don't give antibiotics to people to protect them no. from getting sick. We give them to people to cure an illness. Yet we're still giving antibiotics to animals routinely to prevent them from getting sick. And it's still an overuse that is setting us up for the development of resistance. And right. the, the World Health Organization actually is asking countries around the world to stop this. I mean, if you, uh, I think if you think about, uh, if you consider how the majority of chickens are raised in this country, it is likely, I'm sure, that disease will, uh, you know, strike and potentially, you know, wipe out entire flocks of chicken um, just because of the conditions, the unsanitary conditions that I'm sure would um, lead to disease. But um, so weren't hormones specifically banned in chickens like, you know, decades ago? Right. Um, In the United States, it is illegal to give hormones to a chicken. And this is is interesting because it shows how careful we have to be in reading labels. Right. If you went into any average supermarket, I think, and looked at, you know, a styrofoam tray of chicken that's wrapped with a clear wrapper and has uh, labels on it from the companies, it will probably say no uh, hormones. No hormones. Yeah. And that is true. It is true that they, they, they were raised without hormones, but it's also not something that the companies can give, get, take credit for. It's kind of like saying raised under a blue sky. Like, yes, <laughs> well, a lot of them aren't. But, Come on, yeah. a lot of them aren't. <laughs> <laughs> true. Um, so, but at some point, some, one of the companies, there's about 25 large poultry companies in the United States, some, at some point years ago, someone said in a marketing department, hey, what if we said no hormones? Of course. Because we can't give them hormones anyway, right? They're like, it's and true. And so all the other companies felt that they had to follow suit. And if anyone stepped out and took that off their label, you can be sure that it would be a marketing point with their competitors. Like, oh, maybe they are using hormones right. after all. Uh, with the, so. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Do you think that this um, gave rise to the, an increase in using antibiotics for, this, for the growth purposes? And, and why were hormones, um, you know, disallowed versus antibiotics? So I don't actually know that much about whether hormones were ever used in chickens versus being used in other animals like cattle, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, And whether they're, I I cannot think of a year that came up in my reporting where somebody said, oh no, you know, you can't can't use hormones now. I'm not sure that they ever were. it, again, it's different for different... The, right, the, animals. What, thing, what are fed are, are different for different meat species. Yeah. What I think... But it's very clear looking at the data that year by year, over the decades, from 1948 when this, this use of antibiotics is first figured out, that antibiotic use in animals, meat animals, rose even as the production of meat animals was expanding. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's, I think we have to look at how concentrated meat production became, how big farms were. You mm-hmm. know, a, a, a f- someone who was raising chicken before World War II might have had, uh, you know, a couple of hundred chickens if they were doing laying hens, maybe a couple of thousand. It's very normal now for someone who makes a good living at raising chicken to do a couple of million birds a year yeah. in, in crops of, you know, they, they might have twenty five to 35,000 birds in what they call in, in a house, and they might have, you know, four, six, eight houses on their farm, and they can do six of those cycles, as they call them, in a year, because birds only live well, 40, 50 days before they're slaughtered. 
Um, one of the things that I was very surprised to learn about in the book was the role, essentially, um, if you get right down to it, of the government in kind of exacerbating this problem decades ago. Yeah, this is, you know, as wonderful as it is that we got finally with, with it, you know, in the last days of the Obama administration that we got some control on farm antibiotic use, what that did was make up for where we went wrong for pretty much exactly 40 years earlier. So as we talked about, you know, back in the 1950s, already researchers were saying, we think that, that antibiotic-resistant bacteria are emerging from farms and traveling on meat as a result of these in-feed antimicrobials, and we think that this should be studied more and maybe dialed back. And a lot of the earliest outbreaks were observed in England which licensed these antibiotics immediately after the United States did. And so there's no any one reason why. Um, my hypothesis, I actually grew up in England, and my hypothesis is just that England was a smaller society where cities and agriculture were more interpenetrated, mm-hmm. um, where things were not out of sight, out of mind, the way they are here in the U.S., where our agriculture is thousands of miles away from major urban centers. So when these these very large outbreaks in England arose, people kind of noticed immediately and made the connection to agriculture immediately. And by 1969, um, a a committee of the English government had recommended that the United Kingdom make the first laws, essentially, banning this use of antibiotics, and they did in 1971. So then the, it, you know, sort of attention around the world turned to the U.S. because we were at the time the dominant agricultural par- uh, power on the planet, and we're the place where antibiotics were first misused in this way and kind of waited to see what the U.S. was going to do. Mm-hmm. And that happens to be the same time that Jimmy Carter's administration came in, uh, which was a very young reformist administration. And they wanted to change a lot of things about Washington. And one of the things they planned to change was the rules around allowing antibiotic use in agriculture. They had a very reformist young FDA commissioner who was going to do this. And he proposed calling a hearing at which the pharma manufacturers would have to show that their drugs used in animals were not unsafe. And if they couldn't show that they were safe, they would lose the licenses that the FDA granted in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And they never got to hold that hearing because powerful congressmen uh, with with agricultural interests behind them contacted the White House through a back channel and said, we know you want to do a lot of reforms, um, particularly at the FDA, and if you go ahead with this reform, we will make you regret it. We will hold the entire FDA's budget hostage. Honestly, I mean, how does it always come down to lobbying? It always always comes down to politics and money, which are kind of the same thing. And so the Carter administration backed down. Um, They they told their FDA commissioner that his hearing could not go ahead. And the just just to add insult to injury, the number one um, congressman who was pushing this, whose name was Jamie Witten, he was a Democrat from Mississippi. um, He put a rider on the appropriations bill that said that no government money could be used to pursue this investigation of or control of farm antibiotics. And he renewed that rider every year until he retired in the 1990s as the longest-serving member of the House of Representatives, whereas that FDA commissioner would come um, out of academic science to do great things for this new administration. In two years, he gave up. And he went back to California, and he eventually became the president of Stanford University. Huh. But in that, in that time, this stalemate was created in which agriculture, the agricultural industry and the pharma industry were able to hold the government at bay for 40 years until Obra- the Obama administration broke that stalemate. And meanwhile, around the world, you know, other examinations of this were taking place. And by 1999, Europe had banned this use of antibiotics completely, you know, England first and the Scandinavian countries and all of the European Union. And uh, we, it took yeah. us 10 years to follow them. Yeah, they really always do the right thing first. Um, <laughs> okay, we're going to take a really quick commercial break. But when we get back, I want to talk a little bit more about the regulatory environment, um, both in the U.S. and globally, and um, where we can go from here. Stay tuned.
Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with author Maren McKenna about her book, Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. Um, okay, so before the break, we talked about, um, you talked about pharma's role in blocking um, any major changes to the administration of antibiotics in our, in our you know, for animals. And one of the things that I found so ironic later in the book was that you, um, you discussed the fact that now a lot of pharma companies aren't, they're like giving up. They're like, we don't want to make any more antibiotics because the resistance develops so quickly and we can't make any money on this. That's true. That is the backdrop against which this whole discussion of what are we going to do about antibiotic use in agriculture is taking place is that antibiotic resistance in bacteria, uh, you know, in, in animals, in humans, all around, the, in, in sort of all realms of the world, is increasing and increasing. And it's increasing because we have misused antibiotics for mm-hmm. so long. And, you know, if, if you think about this like a pharma company, their actions actually make a lot of sense, even though they deprive all of us of needed treatments. Financial because sense. They do. Yeah. Because, you know, it take, the generally accepted numbers are that it takes at least 10 years and about a billion dollars to identify a new compound, development, develop it, test it, and get it out to, you know, get it through approval by the FDA, get it out onto the market. So if you uh, are a pharma company and you're looking at those kind of numbers and you're making a compound that is going to fall down against resistance, maybe in just a couple of years, why would you make that compound? Thinking right. that you might never make back your money. You know, it, it makes much more sense from a pharma company's point of view to make the kind of drugs that people are going to take every day for the rest of their lives. That's like, you know, cancer drugs or lifestyle drugs right. or drugs for heart disease. We don't really think about it. And, and it, part of our problem with antibiotic resistance is that we don't think about it. But antibiotics are fundamentally unlike any other category of drug because they make the thing that they're given for go away. While all, you know, heart disease drugs don't necessarily cure heart disease. What they do is make heart disease manageable. If you take insulin every day, you are not curing your diabetes. You're You're making it possible to live while being a diabetic. But it's not, you know, it's not going to make your pancreas go grow back so that you don't have to take insulin anymore. Right. Antibiotics make that, that illness go away, and often in a relatively short period of time, mm-hmm. which makes the, the business model for them unlike any other thing that pharma companies make. And there are people who, who will say now that because we're in this situation with, with losing so many companies from antibiotic manufacture, because antibiotics are such a different thing, that maybe we ought to make them in a different way. Maybe we ought to create a new business model in which they're made by nonprofits or they're funded by the government or some other thing is done so they are not solely um, subject to the vagaries of the market because the, the market for antibiotics is a broken thing. What, can you slow, can antibiotic resistance be slowed? I mean, what, you know, what are, where do we kind of go from here in terms mm-hmm. of how it's, how it's, dealt with, this issue is dealt with? So the good news is that if we stop misusing antibiotics, there's evidence that antibiotic resistance, resistance to those antibiotics, for the most part, will start trending down. And we know that this is true because there are a few societies in the world, notably in, um, in Scandinavia, wh- where they control the use of antibiotics very strictly, not just in agriculture, but in medicine as well. They have effectively a national formulary as part of their single-payer health system mm-hmm. that, in which they say you can only use these drugs in certain situations. We're taking this drug out of the market and we're putting it on the shelf. And when that has happened, they, they also have, as part of this, very good surveillance for that, that's 
looking for antibiotic resistance out in the world, bacteria in patients, bacteria in animals, and they can see that resist, the resistance to those drugs that they take away becomes less common. It's not 100, 100%, and sometimes the timeline's a little unpredictable because sometimes the mutations that cause resistance don't really bother bacteria. They're not hard for bacteria to maintain. So mm -hmm. every once in a while, for some drugs, maybe you know, maybe once resistance is created, it, it never leaves the world. But it happens often enough and for enough drugs that it's really worth doing, that we shouldn't just be sort of throwing up our hands and saying there's nothing we can do. What is the role of industry in, in making big changes to this, to this problem? So it, one, of the, one of the reasons I ended up wanting to write this book is that um, you know, the, 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 the last third of the book is about ways that solutions have happened. And it turns out that industry uh, created some solutions, which is not really what I was expecting to happen. It's not usually what happens. Exactly, right? <laughs> they have to be dragged, kicking, and screaming. Yeah. But in this case, in 2014, the, the chicken company Purdue, which is the fourth largest chicken company in the U.S. and completely privately owned by the Purdue family, announced that on their own, without any external pressure, that they, at least any government pressure, that they were going to take antibiotics out of their chicken production. And they attributed it to, to pressure from their consumers, mm -hmm. that they were hearing from consumers that, they, that consumers had gotten the message about antibiotic resistance and were concerned for their favorite product from their favorite company that they didn't want to spend their money to support this anymore. And uh, the Purdue company, on their own, in a very quiet way, did some really good scientific research which they, to give them credit, they subsequently published in scientific journals in which they looked for whether they could keep up their production while taking antibiotics out. And it turned out that they could, and so they did. And they really set a model for the rest of the chicken industry to follow. If they have, and I'm assuming they definitely do, have <laughs> antibiotic, um, you know, antibiotic-free labels on their meat, um, can we trust those claims? I mean, we talk about how mislabeling and labeling for marketing purposes is, is such a problem within the food industry a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, who's regulating those claims? Do they really mean anything? Um, you know, and how do we really know as consumers that, that it's truthful? It's a good question. You know, we, I think we've all learned that claims like natural and healthy natural, don't really fresh. mean anything at all, yeah. right? Vegetarian um, Fred <laughs> is my favorite. <laughs> but if you look for something like no antibiotics ever, or um, I think no antibiotics ever is probably the, the, um, the most solid. That has actually come to be regulated by the USDA through a, a process that they call process verified, where they actually go and they audit the company. So, so we can, I, I am comfortable taking no antibiotics ever, which is sometimes um, abbreviated NAE, mm -hmm. as, a, a, as, as label language that is trustworthy. Okay. Now, there are some, um, some you know, nuances within this. Not all chicken companies or other meat companies have taken antibiotics out to the same degree. For chickens in particular, chickens are very vulnerable to um, a parasite that affects their guts. It's, uh, the, the disease is called coccidiosis, and, and this parasite kind of naturally lives in the litter that chickens um, live on in chicken houses. And if that parasite gets too common, it can cause um, really severe gut problems for chickens that cause them to not put on weight, not reach slaughter weight, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the drugs that are used to control that parasite are called ionophores, and they have no uh, parallel in human medicine. So um, the resistance to them has never been, been in the parasite, has never been uh, observed, and there's no disease in humans for which we take ionophores. So some companies have said, well, we're not going to use antibiotics, but when we say antibiotics, we mean things like penicillin and tetracycline, we but we're mean. still going to use the ionophores. Yeah. Um, other companies, such as Purdue, have said, oh, no, no, we're taking, we're taking them all out because it's too complicated a message to say to our customers, we're going to use some but not others. We just want to, instead, we just want to say none. And um, it is, you know, I, I, I kind of give them, the companies that are still using ionophores, a pass because I think that they are trying to move toward an even more antibiotic-free situation. But, you know, it's because companies like Purdue led the way that they're feeling the pressure, the other companies are feeling the pressure to do that. 
Um, so what other regulatory uh, actions have um, kind of come about or are potentially in place right now in the U.S. specifically? Um, are there any? And and also, is the two, this is a two-part question, is the 2013 uh, you know, Obama era regulation at risk of being rolled back in any way, given our current administration? So let's talk about that first, because I think it's a really interesting question. So in order to, what, the change that the Obama administration created, um, they did it in a, a really interesting way in order to break this 40-year logjam. They didn't ask to pass a law because Congress would mess with that, and they didn't ask the FDA to create a regulation because that too would have to be approved. Mm-hmm. They did a thing that's called a guidance, which is a document that is written by and controlled by the FDA and doesn't have oversight from outside. A guidance technically is not a regulation. That is, it doesn't have the force of law. What that guidance said was that they wanted the veterinary pharma manufacturers, so the people providing the drugs, not the people using the drugs, a a pretty interesting supply-side rather than Mm demand-side decision, they wanted them to change the labels on the drugs in such a way that the label no longer said the drug could legally be used for growth promotion. And labels on drugs have the force of law in the United States, and they're regulated by the FDA. And kind of to everyone's surprise, um, 26 of the 27 pharma companies selling into that, that agricultural space went along with the guidance even though they could hypothetically have said no. Who was the one who didn't? Sorry. Um, so I don't actually know who the, I don't remember which the 27th was because they withdrew from the U.S. market oh, rather okay. than, than continuing to sell drugs. Okay. Um, drugs that would have been under this guidance. So changing a label and, and, and changing everything around how you distribute a drug and what you say about a drug is a very complicated, cost-intensive process. Mm-hmm. So even though that is all that is keeping the, the, that change in, the, in the, the FDA's operations in 2014, that's the only thing that's keeping the ball in the air. I really don't think that anyone's going to go back on it. Right. I think that it has become sort of the way that business is done now. But the bigger question is, that was only half of the way that antibiotics are misused in agriculture. Right. The other half is using antibiotic doses routinely to prevent disease in barns and feedlots. There are very few countries that have banned preventive use. The expectation was that that was the next thing that the government would tackle. Mm-hmm. Now that we are in, I think, you know, if, if Hillary Clinton had been elected and had essentially continued Obama-era policies, we yeah. might have gotten to that place. Yeah. But we now have, obviously, uh, an administration that is pretty hostile to regulation on businesses, all kinds of regulations. And we know that they're not going to move ahead with this because the World Health Organization in, I think, 2017, maybe 2016, asked all governments of the world if they would please move ahead with, with banning preventive use of antibiotics in agriculture and, among other societies, the Trump administration said no. So we, we, as, as what, we've got, what we got by the time the Obama administration left is probably as good as we're going to get for a while. It's just like insult to injury but day the thing after day. Is, but an important thing, so the thing that, that kind of gives me hope is that I really, it, and in looking at this history, I really believe that the reason we got all the changes that we did, including the, the regulatory change of the Obama administration, came about because of consumer pressure. Mm-hmm. Starting in about 2010, um, big institutional buyers like um, medical centers and large public school districts started to say to the wholesalers from whom they buy meat that they did not want to buy meat anymore that had been raised with routine antibiotic use, that they were going to take their catering dollars and they were going to spend it in a way that created change they wanted to see. And those really big buyers who are big enough to move markets were followed by, you know, smaller but very visible movements like groups of chefs, like the Chefs Collaborative, and groups of parents like the Super Moms Against Superbugs that were put together by the Pew Charitable Trusts. And, you know, the, I mean, Purdue said when they made their change that they were hearing from 3,000 consumers a month yeah. saying that wow. they did not want to buy meat raised with routine antibiotic use. And so, um, you know, I, I take 
take a lot of hope from from that because all of that started rolling before the regulatory change yeah. arrived. And it may be that consumer pressure moves us even further to where we need to go to to dial antibiotic use down as much as possible and to protect the action of antibiotics, which is that that's really why this is so important, is we need to preserve the, anti, the action of antibiotics to cure infections for as long as we can. And the less we misuse antibiotics, the longer antibiotics will last. So as always, it always comes down to voting with your fork and your dollars. Um, And so, I mean, is this, so in addition to supporting kind of companies, and I can't believe I'm saying that, supporting companies like Purdue, but I mean, is, is the bigger answer also knowing your farmer and, you know, having just like more visibility into how your, you know, the meat especially that you consume was grown and processed? Absolutely. Um, in, in Big Chicken, I, you know, I, there's a chapter where I spend a, a chapter with Purdue, but there's a, there's a couple of other chapters where I spend time with small farmers uh, in a couple of different countries, including in the U.S. And, you know, the, particularly for people who are raising chicken and other animals in a pastured way, you know, out on grass all the time, not just free range, whatever that means, <laughs> those animals are, they're, they're actually like different breeds. You know, they're, 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 animal, they're different breeds of chicken, different breeds of pig that, uh, that have some more heritage bloodlines mm-hmm. that are naturally, you know, have stronger immune systems, are more resistant to disease, and just don't need antibiotics in right. the same way that the confined industrial chickens did do. And so I, because of that, uh, and also because those farmers need our dollars more, mm-hmm. um, I really support people going to smaller producers as much as they can. You know, we, what, what we, you know what, what we spend, when we spend our food dollars on those things, we give them a foothold in the market from which they can grow. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I mean, when I'll, I'll buy Purdue chicken when, when my budget gets thin at the end of the month, but Purdue probably needs my dollars less Yes. Than the, the local grass-fed guy, you know, a couple of counties away from me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so last question before we wrap up: um, What's next for you? Are you any, you know, are you working on a new book, or is do you have a new kind of like big focus um, that you're shifting to, or um, will you be continuing to raise awareness about this? It's a super important issue. <laughs> Thank you for asking. So. Um, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure at this point what I'm going to do. It's a little unusual for a journalist to spend as long with one topic as I've spent with the topic well, of you're antibiotic an resistance. Yeah, I guess I am yeah. now. But, um, you know, they, there's a, I mean, I'm very, very interested in what's going to happen next with, with this movement around the world. I think we really have to look at um, particularly what's going to happen in developing economies yes. in India and China and Brazil and Southeast Asia because... Uh, Big middle classes are emerging in those countries. The, one of the most reliable signals that economists use to predict when a middle class is, is, is getting stronger is meat sales. Meat, yeah. Because when people get, some, get more income, they, they spend buy it meat. on meat. Yeah. And so there is not enough arable land in the world for India and China and Brazil to create the kind of pastured farms that we were just talking about Inevitably, they are going to go to some form of very intensive, high-throughput system. And it's really important, as they do, that we in the West, who have started to figure this out, help them to figure out how they can do this without routine antibiotic use. Because the amount of consumption of antibiotics in India and China otherwise is going to be so enormous that it's going to reverse any gains that have been made. And so kind of this battle over misusing antibiotics, is, it's not by any means over. It's, it's reaching a new stage, a new platform. So I'm probably going to be monitoring that, but I'm also starting to look around at some other ideas that might be a little too early to talk about. Yes. I'll happily come back and talk about them yes. in a year or two. Yes, <laughs> I was going to say, please keep me posted. And certainly as you know, we have more developments in this field, I would love to have you back on. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us and for taking time out of your Sunday evening. Oh, so great. Thank you. Um, <laughs> thanks for asking me. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Um, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as our engineer, Matt. Matt Patterson, show musics by the very talented Tim Archer, and all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast um, on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, subscribe, leave me a comment, let me know what you think. 
thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jenna Lee Ute, and have a great week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.